0: So, it'll come as no surprise that in life there is shitty experiences with the Buddha called Dutta. It's a good-sounding word for the shitty experiences that can happen in life. Experiences can be external, of course, Uh, losing people, things we love, being separated from the people we love, being uh, getting into conflict, and uh, feeling mistreated in specific or in situations. Uh, there can be frustrating events in life, from uh, getting on your bike and finding the tires flat, or missing the subway, to you know, having something stolen or fall apart. There's the traumatic experiences in life, accidents, ex- violence experiences, to just the run-of-the-mill daily uh, difficulties. And then, not only are sometimes our difficult experiences... Um, uh, external, but sometimes they're they're not real. We can have traumatic or really, really painful thoughts. Uh, we might find out that a friend threw a party and we weren't invited, and then the thought can arise of oh, nobody likes me. I don't ever get invited to the fun thing. Nobody wants me to be around. So we can really, of course, create miserable experiences as well. We can fall into uh, despairing thoughts about our worth, our value, concerns about what will happen to us in the future, negative ideations about our what we believe to be our true nature or whatever. And interestingly enough, whenever the mind has a really deeply negative experience, whether it's something that's actually happening out there or something that's just a product of a self-centered or self-conscious mind, Um, the amygdala, during a very uh, discouraging experience, will note all the stimuli that's around. Not just the actual stimuli that has to do with the event that's causing us uh, discomfort, but everything that's present. So, for example, suppose you're in a car accident. Your midbrain will not only record the sound of a car, tires screeching, the sight of the headlights coming towards you, or the, the car spinning out of control, but you'll also remember what street the accident is on, the time of day, the music that's on, that you might be listening to, um, the feeling of the body. You'll record everything that's present. And that's because the midbrain that records all the threats in life is not that smart and it really can't tell what's an actual threat from what's just a stimuli that happens to be there. And so everything that happens during a difficult, dispiriting event is, uh, at least parts of it, sensations are stored. And this is important because later on in life, when you encounter any of those sensations again, um, they can re-trigger the memory of the event. So you might be walking down the street and suddenly at the same place where the accident happened, or when you broke up with someone, you might stumble at the same restaurant, or when uh, you found out some bad news, somebody might uh, have been wearing a certain kind of shirt, and then you might see that shirt again later in life, Any stimuli that's present during a negative event, if you encounter it again, can reactivate the memory and have it flood up to awareness. And when it becomes present, then we become activated. We also even can start panic attacks that way. So, as we grow older, our minds accumulate with Triggers things we've associated with negative events that when we re-encounter them in life can trigger feelings of being under threat, even though we're not under threat. For example, suppose you're going through a, tr- a very, very dispiriting breakup with someone. You find out that uh, they've been cheating or... Uh, Something amiss about them, and uh, so you're. It's a certain time of day, a certain time of year, a certain place. You're wearing a certain kind of clothes, or you're sitting in a certain position. Uh, The brain just, interestingly enough, the more they study the neural workings of the amygdala, it's so difficult to predict exactly what information will be associated with threat so that when you re-encounter those stimuli later on in your life, you can reactivate yourself and suddenly feel uh, armored, under threat, even though nothing is happening to you later on. You just happen to have encountered the same shirt body position, same restaurant, same place, same time of day. The, tr- the triggers that can activate us are just too numerous. So one thing that the brain likes to do, or the mind, I should say, likes to do when we feel under threat is it doesn't particularly like the, the physical feelings of, uh, of being uncomfortable. The mind feels safer up attached to its thoughts. It feels optimistic and safer by doing what's known as dissociating, abandoning awareness of the body, awareness of what's going on around us, and just when we've re triggered ourselves, going into the thought what's happening? Something's wrong. I got to get out of here. This is bad. I don't like this. Whatever. And Due to, unfortunately, negativity bias, each time uh, that triggering, activating happens and we wind up back specifically focusing on the thoughts, we add more and more and more to the story. For instance, you break up with somebody and the first time it's just physically uncomfortable, it's sad. Uh, you feel a bit mistreated, but then the next time you remember him or her, then you start adding a little bit more. Well, that shows me I'll never date a Republican again. I'll never date a uh, I'll never date a somebody from Brooklyn, Manhattan. I'll never date... I heard one guy with me... One guy seriously told me, I'm never going to date a redhead again. Like, Are you crazy? <laughs> uh, like, that is the thing. Anyway, so we start adding... Due to negativity bias, we start adding negative uh, theories, stories. Uh, we don't really... The brain doesn't come with a devil's advocate that tries to cheer us up. The brain, when we feel threatened, when we feel activated, tends to add more and more negative ideations. People are out to get me. You can't trust anyone. That'll show me for being vulnerable. Blah, 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 blah. So here's where it's really important to note. Uh... Most memories are actually uh, very poorly written in the brain. While the amygdala tries to write down various sensations, it doesn't actually have the ability to write down uh, the actual events, the narratives, the things that happen in the specific order. And a lot of stuff gets lost. In fact... Uh, we tend to, instead of remembering a lot of actual visuals and dialogue and stuff like that, we tend to remember a little bit of a, a lot of different stuff. And then, so we'll remember a little bit of the body, a little bit of how we were breathing, a little bit of what we saw, a little bit of some words that were said during a, a traumatic experience. we we'll remember just little bits, all across the spectrum of sensations. And then when the mind remembers, is re-triggered, it tends to recreate the entire event from scratch. It's not actually, nothing's hard written And what's really, really interesting is Joseph Ledoux of NYU, the great neuroscientist, has discovered that each time we remember an event, we rewrite it and restore it afresh. Let me put it to you another way. Your memories don't exist hard encoded in any given area of the brain. Each time you remember, you literally lift or pull that information. And then while you think it, you then change the story and rewrite it. You are rewriting your past every time you remember your past. You do not have a past that's set hard-ridden in your brain. The only kind of thoughts that are fairly significantly stable are what's known as flashbulb memories. Flashbulb memories occur when you are about to die. <laughs> you feel you're about to be killed, and you, res- you store so much hard information. The amygdala and the hippocampus are so turned on, they're grabbing everything and they're literally writing it deeply, ingraining it, sometimes not only into the temporal lobe but to other lobes because it thinks, holy shit, I'm about to fucking get killed. I better remember this. They did... They did a research at NYU by a neuroscientist named Tali Shora, I believe it was. I don't remember her name. Tali Schorach. And uh, it was fMRI scans of people who were present during uh, 9-11. Now, I watched 9-11, but I would not be a candidate for flashbulb memories <laughs> because I wasn't actually right standing beneath the towers. I was watching from about a mile away. But the people who were closer to the towers and felt literally like their life were in danger, the more they were in peril, the closer they were to the actual event, the more regions of the brain they used to encode and create flashbulb memories. They didn't only use part of the amygdala, they used virtually all the hippocampus, not just the temporal lobe, but other areas of the brain because their brain was saying, at that time, you need to remember this stuff. But the rest of the memories, even though they're very, very disappointing events, breakups, the loss of somebody we love, uh, uh, seminal events from childhood, difficult experiences, they're only, only very weakly written. Little parts. We remember... Some sensations, by maybe how the body was in the shoulders. Maybe we'll remember one sight or two sights. And then the rest of it, when we remember it, we are literally creating the story from these little, little bits of information. And so we're going to reach now pretty much the crux of what's important about all this stuff I've been telling you, which is that whatever you happen to be thinking or feeling when you remember something will be part of that story the next time you remember it. Each time you remember something from your past, you are adding to it. You're adding the new details that you're thinking. You're adding the new, some of the new sensations in the body. If you have an experience that the first time it happened was kind of... Egh. And then you remember it, and then the brain adds its habitual negativity bias, it can change a yeah. experience to a <laughs> experience to <a> <laughs> experience. <laughs> it's very interesting in uh, seeing people who have kept secrets for a long time how they can turn events that maybe create a little bit of discomfort, but each time they've thought of it, they've added a little bit more, until it becomes a story of their complete failure as a human being. I've, having been sober for 20 years, I've heard many, many, many people tell me their most shameful stories as part of what's known in 12-step recovery is uh, fifth step. And invariably, in hushed, self-serious tones, leading me to suspect they're going to uh, uh, confess to murder or, at very least, to some kind of multiple burglaries, people will tell you stories that never even come close to even raising an eyebrow. And yet, because they've kept them secret, they haven't shared, and each time they've remembered the story, they've made it a little bit worse. Adding a little bit more nausea, a little bit more physical agitation until you know, I want some $20 from my pen. One guy confessed to getting a blowjob at a bar. Was his most horrible. <laughs> it actually was from another man. That was the. Uh, but I, you know, uh, I mean, come on, that was the most interesting thing about him. <laughs> <laughs> But because each time he rethought about it, he thought about that event, he added more self-disgust, more self-loathing until it became this, this story of his not deserving to live. So that's the way memories work. Each time we bring them up, we accumulate different details, different... And generally, as I said, the, the theory goes that the amygdala is five times more likely to add negative ideations, threat feelings of discomfort, your brain isn't set up to go, ah, that was hilarious. (laughs) So this is really important because it turns out then that while we can probably... The research shows that it's very, very difficult to remove entirely from your mind the images that, or some of the uh, little bits of stuff that's encoded during a very, very uh, painful event. What you can do is you can change entirely the way you relate to that memory. In other words, you can... No longer when memories of uh, that you've encoded as as harm or as signs of being uh, there's something wrong with with us. We can actually, if we go against the habitual tendency to add stress in the body, negative thoughts, more negative details, we can actually begin to neutralize the effect that negative experiences have on us. And this not only goes for experiences, but thoughts as well. For instance, for a long time, I, I thought, you know, uh, financial insecurity thoughts could really trigger me. Just the uh, Stuff about being a Buddhist teacher, so, but then after a while, I would just, I did some of the practices I'm going to tell you about, and when these really triggering thoughts would arise, I could actually learn to hold the thoughts, but not to activate myself into a feeling of being under threat, and that's the key, none of this is about, you know, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, we're not trying to erase memories, but what we're actually trying to do is take advantage of the brain's ability to uh, not give into its tendency to make experiences more and more and more traumatic and painful, and in fact do the opposite. So, for example, if we have a a thought that triggers us or an experience from the past that always makes us launch into thoughts of being unlovable, being completely unique, isolated, unwanted, not successful, a failure, we can begin to train the mind when these Images, experiences, or just little tiny thoughts arise not to add on all that additional stuff that makes us suffer so much. Except, if you want to do that, I'll give you an example. Sometimes there's things in life that we think about doing that are not very good for us. But we've associated those things with positive outcomes. And then what you can do is you can take advantage of how mutable and changeable memories and thoughts are by making bad ideas no longer seem enticing. For example, in sobriety, a lot of people associate when they come into recovery, they associate shooting dope, having a drink, doing coke with positive outcomes. They know that immediately or shortly afterwards they'll feel a sense of ease. So what 12-step programs do is they make people play the tape all the way through and think about the negative outcomes that happen the next day. So what they're doing is they're associating and bringing to mind negative images to add on to these temptations, impulses, compulsions, so that when they arise, they won't be, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to get wasted. But most of the time, in my experience, the work we're going to be doing is the opposite. We're going to be taking needlessly traumatizing thoughts and memories and making it so that we can hold these experiences without too much suffering. So, here are the three tools. The first is when you find yourself being activated or triggered by a memory that's painful, or by a thought that each time you think it leads to an avalanche of self-centered, negative, uh, I'm a loser, there's something wrong with me, thought spirals. So, let's use the example of... uh, the feeling of loneliness. And you might be at home on a Friday night, and you realize that you don't have any plans, and then when the experience of loneliness or, oh, I don't have anything to do comes up, then the mind might start to populate with thoughts like, oh, I'm not, you know, people don't like me, I don't have enough friends, blah, 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 then the body feels heavy, etc. So what do we do? We can allow the the mind to fall into its tendency of uh, negativity bias, or B, we can actually go into the body, bring our awareness into the body, find the breath, and make your out-breath as long as you possibly can and as smooth as you possibly can. Now, why in the world would you want to do that? Well, I'll tell you. Each time you make your out breath. Long, you're triggering the vagal vagus nerve, and you're telling your brain, everything's okay, nothing's bad happening, I'm not under threat. That nerve actually has a direct line to some part of your brain called the insula, which actually then tells the midbrain, hey, I'm not under threat. I might be feeling a little lonely, but nothing really bad is happening. I can actually be with this without feeling it's the end of the world. So you're actually rerouting the process. You're subverting the mind's tendency to add more and more negative thoughts, negative beliefs, on top of the original feeling of loneliness. You're not getting rid of the loneliness, but you're allowing yourself to be with it without turning it into something that makes you suffer. You get that? Yeah, no fear. So, whenever there's an experience that triggers you, the most important thing is to simply find how you're breathing. Most of the time, if you're already being activated, you'll know that your breaths are becoming shorter and more baited and quicker and quicker because that's the sign that you're feeling activated or under threat. The moment the brain says there's a threat, the vagal vagus nerve and the and the breath will immediately follow suit unless we override it consciously and say, no, nothing's going wrong. Now, the temptation is to try to, instead of doing this, try to rely on language and simply to tell ourselves, what's the matter with me? Why am I feeling so bent out of shape? Unfortunately, the midbrain doesn't understand language, so all the tools we'll be using really don't rely on language. Now, if you don't like working with your breath, no worries. You can actually work with body sensations. When you're feeling activated by a thought, a memory, an experience, you don't, Some something's bringing up that feeling of discomfort, find the belly, the chest, the face, the shoulders, and notice We hold emotions always in the front of the body, in the torso, generally in the face. Notice what's tight and then relax it. Soften. In my experience, most of the time, we can work with the belly. Really just soften the abdomen. It's not very attractive, but it works. Again, if the body is comfortable, the breath is comfortable, the mind will follow. It doesn't have a choice. The insula, which works in conjunction with your midbrain, which keeps the fear going, is basically largely under the sway of the body. And when the body says you're okay, it will inform the mind to stop the whole fear activation mechanism. Now, there's a second practice that I like. Um, Bringing to mind a place that you feel safe, or a person with whom you feel protected, someone that you feel very close to. This is even a practice that can be done in one's meditation. If you feel that your meditation has become pretty stable and you've got a nice daily practice, then bringing to mind the image of a place that you feel really safe, maybe uh, a hammock or with friends or a location that you know that you can relax hold that image in your mind feel the sense of ease in the body and then when you feel ready invite something that triggers you up into your mind bring it to mind visualize an experience that triggers you it could be somebody that you're struggling with somebody you're avoiding it could be a, a situation if you're worried about bills and you haven't opened them visualize opening the bills if you're worried about uh, a conversation or a difficult conversation that might cause conflict that you're avoiding bring to mind that person and that conversation. And then keep the trigger in mind with also the feeling of being safe and alternating it with the feeling, the image of being safe. So back and forth, the trigger, the person with whom you feel safe, the trigger, the place you feel safe, keeping the body relaxed. What you're doing is you're taking advantage of the fact that memories and triggers are changeable. And the next time you remember that experience, it will be a little less frightening, a little less embarrassing, a little less shameful, a little less activating. This is not just me simply trying to sell you. If I was going to try to sell you, I'd probably charge you something. But actually, all this has been researched in very great detail by Ledoux and other neuroscientists, and they show over and over and over again that people can change even very, very traumatic experiences (laughs) to memories that they can hold without going into panic, fear, or reactive spirals. Some experiences, people at first want to go and hide like feelings of sadness or memories of childhood, and eventually, in therapy, with someone they feel safe, they can begin to hold those memories. I have a friend, a a mindfulness teacher, who works with soldiers who come back with extreme cases of PTSD, generally people who have seen some of the most horrible experiences or been through the most horrible experiences, seen some of the most graphic events that you could possibly imagine. And the work is not to try to get rid of the memories. The work is, in fact, to bring up the memories, but do so while being in a safe environment, being with, you know, in a holding an image, or holding a a threat that allows you to be with the trigger. So none of this is about rewriting the past. It's always about um, just neutralizing the sway it has on us. To quote Ledoux, physiological responses to memories can be reconditioned even if the memories will remain. Once again, the physiological, the panic, the feeling of being under threat, the fear, the agitation, can be completely reconditioned even while the memory will remain. It's not possible, he says, to remove memories, but it is possible to erase the conditioned fears that come with those memories. Daniel Wegner of Harvard argues that We should never try to get rid of a memory, just recondition what we associate with it. Even when thoughts can be suppressed, they don't go away. The attempt to avoid thoughts leads to greater preoccupation with those thoughts. The only way forward is to recondition. Again, so we're not running from our experiences, we're learning to be with it in a way that doesn't traumatize us. Now, of course, the third way to do this is with someone that you feel safe, a therapist, someone that you feel uh, in relation to someone, talk about an experience. This is why therapy and all forms of relational work helps people remove the traumatic coding that they've added to memories because each time you bring it up, If you're in a therapist's office or or working with someone with whom you feel safe, each time you bring up the trauma and talk about it, and you replace it back in the temporal lobe, each time it's less threatening. You can be a little bit more calm, a little bit more peaceful. You can hold it with a little less fear, agitation, a little less reactivity. And then eventually it just becomes our story our past, as we recreate it again and again and again. I hope there was something worth pondering in that. I thank you so much for listening and for your practice. Now I'm going to turn this off.